0: don't call us, we'll call you. It's commonly accepted as best practice to decouple your code, lest you get the dreaded spaghetti code that is codependent, relying too much on methods outside itself. We're going to look into ways to implement one of the solid principles, dependency inversion, through the inversion of control principle, and how it can be applied. We'll talk about patterns you can use in your code to apply these principles. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? You know, we
1: didn't get to record last week, so this is actually, you know, this doesn't matter to the the uh, end listeners, I guess. But uh, we're a week late recording this one. Uh, the other thing is, and I, you know, I neglected to even mention this on the Facebook Live, but I have updated my computer massively.
0: Um, oh, it is so sweet, guys! It, it's it's so quiet compared to the other one, like I, I walked downstairs um, when I got here and I was like, something feels off. And Will goes, hey, see my new computer? And I was like, oh, right. That's what feels Because I heard it's you a- pause on the steps. You know, it's like you took, because you got about four steps down and
1: then you stopped your leading foot on the next step. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, because like, like- I heard you walking and then you just stopped and I'm like, Ah, that's what it is it immediately <laughs> made yeah. sense to me, but yeah. So yeah, I've got a much faster machine and basically what happened is, is Windows Update kind of bricked a bunch of my stuff Yeah, and it was like, I was already saving for an upgrade. Mm-hmm. I just had to rush a little bit and so I didn't get to upgrade all the things I wanted to upgrade. I was able to get just enough, but it's still an order of magnitude faster and
0: you didn't get to do everything all at once, but you're good to go. That's awesome, dude. But dude, that heatsink. Oh my goodness. That heat sink though. The, yeah. You sent me a picture when you're putting it together and you're like, you see the heat sink? I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I got this
1: massive like cooler master rig that like go, you know, there's a piece that hooks on the back side of the motherboard and has, you know, like and then there's a piece on the front side or the top and the bottom, I guess how you I don't know. It's it's weird when it's it's vertical now, like yeah. how you refer to things. But yeah, that thing was a pain to put together and uh my the junior developer i work with really 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 loves hardware like it's like a kid in a candy store getting to play you know put a machine together and and so like i saw his face light up and i'm like well i can pay you to put it together he's like oh i'll do it for free and so we just stay late on a friday night putting that machine
0: together would would he be willing to help me put a machine together don't know you had to talk
1: to him but uh I, i would i would pay in beer yeah, there you go. But uh so anyway, yeah, that's that's fixed. Everything is much faster. Previously I would see spikes on the memory and the CPU, yeah, you know, where it would those would be capping stuff out. And mm-hmm. for the most part I can't Make uh, you know load spikes do anything except on the GPUs, because, like if you run like Black Desert with the new update that they've got, like that will peg the GPU at about ninety five percent.
0: Yeah, um, so that's
1: the next thing that's got to get updated.
0: So how about you? So we made our first push to production on an app I'm working on. That was a rough few weeks as um, we had to make sure all the dependencies were in line and up to date on the server. Yeah, I had, to, I had to go in and work on a couple of things not in our project to get them up uh, up to snuff and then had to go in and make some changes in the project to to match what was in production. Um yeah, that was that was not a fun time, but we got it going. Um we got a few more months to add some features to the project. Um, and then we'll have our final push to production. Well, I say final. It's final for this iteration. The team um, that I'm on is going to be working on something else for a little bit and then coming back to it. And after the business team has had time to use the application and get used to it and go, Oh, hey, we, we really need these things for what we do, that sort of stuff. Now, week before last... I helped Junior Developer Toolbox to record their anniversary episode. They did a live recording. Sounds weird, but it was a a presentation that they recorded at Nashville Software School Alumni Association on imposter syndrome. It was really good. The episode came out earlier this week, and there was one point where they had asked me a question, and I kept quiet, sitting over to the side, working on things. Um, And uh, one part, they asked me a question about you. And when we first started podcasting, and so they ended up leaving that in. So it was really cool. I listened to the episode and got to hear my own voice on, uh, on somebody else's podcast. I always, I always love that. I don't know why it, it makes me feel special, but it does. Whatever works, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, since we're talking kind of about language and framework constructs, I have something sort of related for IoTs. <laughs> So, last week, Amazon announced that they have built a new language for developing Alexa skills. It's called the Alexa Presentation Language, or APL. Um, I don't know if they're going to call it Apple, because that would be really awkward. Is, I think APL's already another language, though. <laughs> well, that they're abbreviating it APL, so... It will allow developers to build interactive experiences with the Alexa platform. The really cool thing is this also includes graphics, images, and videos that can be played on devices such as like the Echo Show or like the Fire TV or Fire TV Stick that I have. You can also create content for devices using Alexa Smart Screen or uh, the TV device SDK, so their smartphone applications as well. It's it's really cool. They got a lot of neat stuff in this language. It, it is built for working with voice commands and has a lot of built-in components, including image text views, pagers, layouts, and conditional expressions. It's really neat, I'll have a link to Amazon's announcement and preview in the show notes.
1: Who's talking to us this week? Well, since you were talking about the Alexa presentation language, we have an email from Alex Nordin. Hi, I stumbled upon your site today while searching for data on web services. You have awesome posts. Great work. And then he goes on to mention a link on the JDT site that we've shared with them.
0: Yeah, he he found our site and then found, um, I think through JDT and... Uh, was talking about some of the stuff on their site too and so I, I passed that on to them but hey Alex thanks so much send us another email with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you guys if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media we post all our episodes to Facebook Twitter LinkedIn and Google Plus we're also on Path Instagram and Tumblr you can check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter live we talk about what going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com.
1: When writing code, we need to be conscious of the interdependence of different objects or modules of code. This interdependence is called coupling. Tightly coupled code is highly dependent on another piece of code for its functioning. In an object-oriented world, we want to make each unique set of code, an object or a module, interchangeable so that it can be replaced easily. To do this, we have to reduce the amount of interdependency between sets of code. This is what we're referring to when we mention decoupling code.
0: The dependency inversion principle is a specific form of decoupling modules of software. It's so important a part of object-oriented programming that it is the D in solid principles. You know, the principle itself states that high-level modules should not be dependent on lower-level modules, but instead should be dependent on abstractions. Also, abstractions should not be dependent on details. The details should depend on the abstractions. The high-level modules should be independent of the implementation details in lower-level modules, and then at the lower-level it should be designed with the interaction in mind as it may need to change interfaces. However, the inversion of dependency does not mean that lower level layers depend on higher layers. Both should depend on the abstract interface between them. Um, And we can go more into this in other episodes. This reduces coupling of components without adding more code or coding patterns. All that said is to get us to the content of this episode, which is inversion of control.
1: Yeah, an inversion of control is a principle within the dependency inversion principle, or DIP. It is a way of designing code to implement the dependency inversion principle. In it, the custom code written for the functionality of the application does not control the flow of control. Instead, that is received from a more generic framework. Procedural programming the code calls reusable libraries to perform generic tasks, whereas with IOC, the framework calls into the task-specific code. The idea is to increase the modularity by using a framework that knows common behaviors and fills in the specifics of performing tasks with the custom code. So here's the deal. What we're trying to do here is make it so that your lamp is not dependent on the wiring in your house. It's dependent on a light socket.
0: Inversion of control serves several different purposes. And this is pulled directly from Wikipedia. First one is to decouple the execution of a task from the implementation of the task. So like Will was saying, you know, your your light is dependent on a socket.
1: Yeah. And the socket's dependent on whatever it's dependent on, but you're not worried about that.
0: Right. Which is really interesting because just earlier this week one of the so- or like one of the plugs went out. I was like, "Crap, I go get in the closet and um flip the breaker, like of no, the breakers were were flipped, I was like, all right, what what's going on, and it's you know how in the bathroom you have the the ones with that, oh yeah, the g f i yeah, it wasn't on that one, but the one it, it was, was on, on the same com- circuit, yeah, yeah, so I had to go fix that I'm like and that was behind the microwave, just I- I'm glad I'm moving, yeah,
1: <laughs> but what you didn't have to do was replace your
0: microwave <laughs> because you. Change that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Another purpose is to focus a module on the task that it is designed for.
1: Yeah, and it's also to free modules from assumptions about how other systems do what they do and instead rely on contracts. So, again, the electric plug thing, right? Mm. It knows the voltage. It knows the amperage. That stuff, yes, it's got to be designed for the parts that it needs. It doesn't know how long the wire is out the street. It doesn't care.
0: Also, it prevents side effects when replacing a module, because the modules themselves are interchangeable. You can take one out and put another one in, and it doesn't care. Now, in this episode, we're going to go through a few of the more common ways to implement this inversion of control, starting with the most common um, and the most well-known, which is dependency injection. We'll also discuss callbacks, schedulers, and event loops. Finally, we'll talk about a few related design patterns and how they are used to apply the inversion of control principle. This is an overview because realistically, we could do a deep dive into each one of these, like dependency I- injection could be a series of episodes, and the others could easily be their own episode if not two episodes. yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of hit this at a high level and do our best to explain things as we go along.
1: So the first one is dependency injection, as promised. Instead of having a module of code call the other modules it needs directly, dependency injection passes those into the module from the original caller of the module.
0: A dependency then would be any service that is not in that particular set of code or module, um, but is required for its functionality. So if you need something, but it's not, you haven't coded it in that block of code, then that's a dependency, right? This terminology can be a bit misleading because it's not injecting a new dependency, but rather giving a provider for that dependency.
1: It's pulling it out where it can be plugged in. Right. That's, (laughs) it's really hard to express that cleanly. Um, You know, for instance, like you would do something like, instead of newing up a database connection you pass that in. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Hey, give me a database connection. I don't care where you get it because your, your module doesn't, it just needs to talk to the database. Like that's the thing it's specialized in.
0: And one pattern I didn't talk about in this outline is the repository pattern where you create a repository of those database connections. Right. And you just call that, but that would be a way of doing this. Yeah. Cause that's almost a factory.
1: Yeah. At that point. The idea of injection is that the module needing the service isn't the one in charge of getting it. That way it's passed in when calling that module. This keeps you from being dependent on the constructor Mm -hmm. of the other thing too.
0: The goal is to decouple objects so that code doesn't have to be changed just because something it depends on is changed. Or if you change the code, you don't have to go change what it's depending on. Right because they don't they don't know about each other.
1: They talk yeah. through a they talk through a plug essentially. Yeah. Now there's four pieces to dependency injection that we need to talk about and that's the service the client the interface and the injector. So the service is the object that is depended upon in order for the module to function. In other words, this would be the database connection mm-hmm. that we were talking about before.
0: The client is the module or piece of code that you wrote that's being called and needs that service or depends on it.
1: Right. So that might be like a repository class that, you know, is a database repository. In other right. words, it goes out and and reads and writes to the database. It mm-hmm. needs that connection. Right. Interfaces define how the client is able to use and interact with the service. So this would be an example, this would be instead of, hey, I'm passing a SQL connection in, it's like I'm passing an IDB connection. You know, it's an interface database connection. It's got the same methods and all, but you don't know the type. You just know you got to talk to it.
0: The code that is responsible for constructing the service and injecting it into the client is called the injector. This gets
1: really weird with dependency injection because it could be you know a test that's spinning up that object and going hey I'm going to new up the things and pass them in, mm-hmm. or it could be you know another thing that's going hey just get me this and the IOC or DI framework crams all that stuff in and spins it out.
0: It, it could be where your dependency injection framework creates it, injects it into your controller, and then your controller injects it into your service. Right. And then your service calls another service and injects it into that so yeah. that you... Or the
1: service is injected into the controller and its constructor requires the repository and its constructor requires the... the I've done that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I did a lot of that this week. <laughs> uh, it, it, see, it this builds. It's, it snowballs up. Mm-hmm. Rather than allowing the client to create or find the service, dependency injection passes that service in when constructing the module so that it is part of that module state.
0: Yeah. The client that is called is not allowed to create new or static methods. Right. Um, the responsibility for providing dependencies is delegated to the code calling the client or the injector.
1: And this is really handy when you're testing, by the way, so you can make a mock of the thing. Instead of going, hey, I've got to pass this database connection in, or I've got to pass Mm -hmm. this repository in, let's say. I'm going to pass something that implements that interface, but just spoofs it so it doesn't actually go across the wire. So I can see how it interacts with the Mm -hmm.
0: repository without worrying about breaking my database. So this is interesting because I've been doing this with .NET for a while, several years now, but I'm just learning Java in school. And I took a course on test automation where, guess what language we used? Java. Yeah. So I got to learn how to do some of the actual practical things I do in my daily job in the academic, in air quotes, language that I'm learning. Yeah. Which was, it was really kind of neat because all I've seen of Java has been academia, grad school. So it was really cool to see some real practical application of it.
1: The client itself doesn't need to know about the injecting code. Only the interfaces of the services being injected. It shouldn't have any knowledge at all of the implementation of its dependencies. Um, now, "should" is a problematic word, right? Because, like the SQL connection I was telling you about earlier, like yeah. you got to know that you're talking to it in SQL if you're using a SQL connection because it's the language. But there's yeah, there's kind of a there's a gray area. Yeah, there's a gray area, fuzzy. Area yeah, you there. decouple it as much as you can. Right.
0: The client code should not have to change if the code behind the interface changes.
1: Right. And that's so what they're getting at.
0: The idea here is, for for example, what I have, I have a repository. makes this call to the database. Well, if it's a post, I pass in the object that it's going to map and send to the database. If the way I'm doing that changes or if the ORM I'm using changes... My service that calls that doesn't care. All it knows is I call this interface, that interface takes this object and it puts it in the database.
1: Yeah. And the smaller you're, you know, when you you set things up this way, what happens is you can actually change stuff out Mm -hmm. for, you know, for it being advantageous versus, oh yeah, my, my website knows SQL and knows exactly where the database server is. You know, like that's hard to change. There are three common types of dependency injection allowing an object to receive a reference from an external caller. Now, the first of these is constructor injection, which passes the dependencies into the client by way of a class constructor when constructing the client. By the way, usually the pattern when you do that is, is you make those objects, once they're in that object, they are immutable within mm-hmm. that scope because you don't want that changing as right. you're going through.
0: Yeah, and this is, this is a, a pattern that I have used a lot. Yeah. Um, the next is the setter injection and it uses a public setter method on the client to set or inject the dependency right so this this would be like a public property in c sharp right and the third one is interface injection that has the dependency provide an injector method that will inject the dependency into the client when passed into it
1: yeah so that's i would assume that's like where you pass in a a factory yeah. Almost, or an interface to a factory.
0: Yeah. See, the thing is, for this to work, the client must have an interface with an exposed or public setter. So you have to have that setter in order for the interface injection to work.
1: Right. Um, now you could. I wonder if you could do that in .NET with like reflection and actually have some kind of. I bet you could because you could get like you could get private members there and have a, an attribute on it, but oh, man. That would be nasty. Yeah, I don't want to write that code. You'd be, you'd and, be
0: writing .NET code that looks like Java. I'm just kidding. No, it would, <laughs> it would,
1: not, it would no, look a lot be a worse. worse than that. It would look like Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> just go ahead and say it, you know, because like there's a certain point when it gets past it, you're like,
0: hey, you know, <laughs> if I clean this up, they're going to know how bad I am. Yeah. So, other types of frameworks exist for injecting dependencies. Some testing frameworks are not requiring clients to actively accept injection, which makes testing legacy code possible.
1: Right. So if you you know if you get a sealed class, for mm-hmm. instance, like what are you going to do about that? And they, for security reasons, may be sealing it, or for performance, or any other number of reasons, they they may have done that. So you may um, have to do that.
0: What you're talking about with reflection, you can do that in Java.
1: Well, and you can get you can get at um, private members in .NET too, and write to them.
0: Yeah. Some inversion of control replaces dependencies instead of removing the dependencies as a rule of thumb if a programmer can look at nothing but the client code and tell what framework is being used then the client has a hard-coded dependency on that framework and that comes almost directly from wikipedia
1: yeah so the next one is something i use enough that it annoys
0: some of my teammates i found out but uh, this is callbacks or call after functions. Right. A callback is code that is passed into a function as an argument with the expectation that it will call back to the code and execute it at a certain time in the execution of the function. So it's interesting, and before we jump into this, I got burned by this a little bit, not from my own code, but from the code of a, I'm putting this in air quotes, Senior dev? Yes. He was more like a mid-level in like, he he overcomplicated it and I don't think he understood what he was doing. So, using a repository pattern um, and generics, he was passing in a where clause. And you remember when I asked you how to fix this because I knew it was possible. I just didn't know exactly what to do. But he's passing in a function as a where clause and then-
1: But the function was getting executed immediately- no. Instead of it deferred? Wasn't.
0: Okay. It was getting deferred. So, what it was doing is it was calling the. Oh, it was database. pulling everything
1: back and then running that function on the. Return. Right. Yeah.
0: And so, what it had to be was pass it in as an expression of a function because that expression then gets translated into the function that gets translated into the SQL that gets passed into the database. And like we figured this out when I was. Explaining to the DBA what, what was happening, he's like, but that's not what the database is getting. The database is just it's pulling back the entire table. I'm like, so I went and I, I looked at his unit tests and um, I had to go and set it up to where he could you could see the SQL that was being created. But I looked at that and I was like, oh my goodness, he's right. Yeah. This was about a year and a half ago. But um, I, was still, I was still a junior developer, and I'm like, uh. Yeah, that, that kind of debugging <laughs> is no
1: place for a junior. Yeah. Um, you use a lot of callbacks in JavaScript, too. Yeah. Um, they're really, I mean, there's a couple different things that happen, right? Like, I use them in C Sharp, and most of the ones I use in C Sharp tend to be synchronous. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I have an API endpoint, for instance, that somebody calls in to any of the controller methods, and, you know, there's a JSON payload coming in. Well, we log that. And then we do stuff with it, and then we log the result coming back out before we hand it off. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wrote a method that says, "Hey, um, when you get this thing, here's here's the actual you know doodad that you do, and it calls back to that little function, but around it it handles you know serializing the JSON and, and mm-hmm. saving the return value.
0: So synchronous callbacks occur immediately, whereas asynchronous callbacks may be executed at a later time.
1: Yeah, and this is something that burns people in JavaScript you know, because JavaScript really uses this a lot because JavaScript functions are object-ish. Um, They're
0: objects. They're treated as objects.
1: Yeah, it's their, it's their analog of an object. I mean, there's some really nerdy reasons why it's not quite, but yeah. Um, so they get passed in a lot because it's easy. Mm-hmm. but the problem is in javascript is a lot of this stuff is going out to a server and coming back async and so people will call stuff put an async callback in there and then think that whatever was supposed to happen in that async callback should already have happened by the time they come back to the next line and it hasn't and it
0: hasn't and that's why or it happens on on localhost and it doesn't happen in production because it's it's slower there and right. under load i know we've we've had that um I had to tell tell someone I was like you're going to have to put that entire block of code in the promise.
1: Yeah, so, and it's even it gets even uglier when you start nesting those things. Oh yeah, I've deeply. seen it. I've, I've, and you get the whole arrow thing there yes. it's like it's like I got to scroll to the right to see what this is actually doing, and <laughs> I've completely lost all context because it passed two or three callbacks. So people don't people can't think like that for mm-hmm. the most part?
0: You know, you can you can string um, in Angular. You can string the the dot then's. I think it's a a JavaScript construct, so you can do it in in vanilla JavaScript as well, where you string them, and it it works like that. Or you can use messaging. Yeah. Which we'll talk about here in a bit. Various languages support callbacks in different ways. They may be implemented via subroutines, lambda expressions, blocks, function pointers, so forth. A subroutine is a set of code that performs a specific task packaged as a unit and used wherever that task is needed. Lambda
1: functions or anonymous functions are functions that are not bound to an identifier. In other words, you're going, hey, here's the function I want, pass this in, you know, and uh, don't tell me the details like here it is, just go do your thing and so it'll it'll pass it in
0: do you remember when I was trying to understand lambda functions and I just could not get my brain around them yeah it was about it was about a month and a half where finally like it, after the first two or three days of me just like beating my head against the wall you're like look just do it yeah and he's like and you for exactly what you said but it was basically here's a bunch of things that you can go build and just Follow the pattern of building them with Lambda functions and know that when you do this, this is the result. You don't know how, have to know how it works, but know this is a result. And after you get done building all of these things, it'll click. Yeah. You're like, it. it just it's just going to click one day. And that's what happened. I just had to go yeah. do it over and over. And that's what I had to do.
1: Um, and I actually learned Lambda functions in Ruby. Yeah. Because they were in Ruby before they were in C Sharp. Mm-hmm. And you know brought that back. Now, way back in the day, we had other... Um, things for that, right? Like we had function pointers and understanding it as a function pointer helps. But so callbacks are designed and defined by how they control the flow of data at runtime. So like a blocking callback is synchronous in that it's invoked before the function returns a value. Thus, it blocks the function from completing until the callback returns. So you could pass in a never ending loop and you're going to lock up thing that invokes Mm -hmm. that code.
0: Deferred callbacks are asynchronous on the other hand, um, it may be invoked after the function returns and are often used in event handling and IO operations. Right. So um, a lot of like in JavaScript calls to the server would be using asynchronous callbacks because right. you, you call out to the server and then when it, when you get that return, you run this.
1: Right. And you might do the same thing with worker threads too, like where you pull back a, you know, chunk of stuff to do mm-hmm. and then you pass things out You parcel them out async to a whole bunch of things that are working on them and they'll come back, but you're not stopped while that happens. So you can still uh, exercise control over those threads with your main thread.
0: Yeah. Implementation of callbacks varies based on the style and type of language you are using in dynamic languages, such as JavaScript, Python, PHP, Perl, I could keep going. Functions are objects that can be passed into another function. Object-ish, as Will prefers me to say. Functional languages often treat functions as first-class citizens, allowing them to be passed as callbacks into other functions. Yeah,
1: and some languages allow functions to be passed as closures, allowing them to access and modify locally defined variables. And this is what happens in C Sharp. Yeah. Like if you've got a callback, it can access stuff in the outer scope. Mm -hmm. And JavaScript can as well depending on how you declared your variables. But that that's that can be a little bit of a dangerous pattern, mm-hmm. especially as you get bigger chunks of code because you don't realize what is changing variables. And so between two different lines, when it's not being assigned, its value may
0: still have legitimately changed. Right. And then you have to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. In older languages like C, C++, our favorite Pascal, and even assembly, a machine-level pointer to a function can be passed into a function.
1: Yes. Um, and you'll also do this sometimes with handles as mm-hmm. well, right? So, you're passing a pointer to a pointer. But, you know, it's it's roughly the same deal. It's going, hey, here's where it is. Here's where you start. Go do your
0: thing. Leave me alone. So, next we're going to talk about schedulers or putting the IOC on the kernel. Y- yeah, Okay. <laughs>
1: Uh Yeah, this is going to be rough. Uh, scheduling is the process of assigning resources to complete assigned work. Now, schedulers work by, you know, obviously scheduling
0: and tracking batch tasks. A job or batch scheduler is used for controlling the execution of background tasks. Operating system scheduling allows a computer to multitask, in quotes, while still using a single CPU. Schedulers are set up to keep all resources busy so that multiple users can share the same system resources in an effective manner. Yeah, and the process scheduler
1: decides which processes are allowed to run at a given time. Uh, it can pause ones that are running, you know, hang on to their state and bring them back later. hmm uh, it can start new processes. It can move processes within the queue and go. Oh, hey, now this is high priority because I don't know. You know, it's it was waiting on a buffer to get filled. That buffer is getting filled, and we need to get stuff out of there because stuff is about to go in there.
0: Right. I was thinking this is high priority because it involves bourbon. This is low priority because it involves I don't know gin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just go with whatever. But yeah. uh, the, the the idea here is that. The scheduler determines when things run through the processor. And there are different methods for that. Operating system kernels have different schedulers for the different levels of the process of accessing memory and resources. The long-term scheduler authorizes or delays processes from entering into the queue in main memory when a program attempts to execute. So this is the one that the, the first one it sees in the process. The long-term scheduler says, all right, you're allowed in the queue of task to be run or you're not. You right. have to wait. Yeah. Or you're never allowed in. An IO-bound process spends most of its time doing input-output instead of computations, whereas a CPU-bound process spends most of its time doing computations. So you got to you got to
1: weigh the priority of those things based on what they're actually doing and where you know,
0: if they have their data or not. What, yeah, what what they're actually doing and what's available. Right. The next scheduler, the medium term scheduler, is responsible for swapping processes between main memory and secondary or hard disk memory. So this is an issue that I had with the crap top because yeah, you have
1: lots of swapping going on.
0: Yeah, Windows is super freaking heavy. Like I'm, I'm really realizing this working with a Mac now. Um, like I am almost with Linux. Yeah. I'm almost to the point of completely. Well, yeah. The problem with Linux is a a lot of the programs that I, I need, I can't get on them, but I can get on a Mac.
1: Yeah. Cause that was the thing I remember running Linux is they're like, Oh, this, this desktop environment, you know, they're like, Oh, KDE is a pig. Right. And you're, you're sitting there going, yeah, it's, it's running like three times as fast as like, (laughs) like what, what, does that mean my other thing is like a triple ping?
0: <laughs> so what, what I ran into was that the crap top had four gigabytes of RAM, right. which was freaking huge way back, you know, in, the, in the ancient times when I bought it. What, like 2010? <laughs> yeah, back
1: when the Dead Sea was
0: just sick. <laughs> yeah. But Windows 8 ate up a lot of it, but Windows 10 takes up almost four gigabytes of memory just by itself.
1: Right. And so, there was a little bit of memory left, and so every time something had to switch into memory, whatever had been in memory had to go to the swap. Right. And the swap gets written to disk, and you had a 5,400 RPM, Mm -hmm. very full disk that was also getting the crap beat out of it by everything. Yes. That was swapping in and out. And oh, by the way, we were recording audio and you were editing audio. <laughs> which yeah. Which not a good thing for that scenario.
0: So, processes that are swapped out to secondary memory tend to be lower priority or inactive over a period of time. When you have memory to use. Right. This is done to free up main memory for higher priority or faster processes. Yeah, and slower, lower priority
1: processes are swapped back in when more memory is available or when it's kind of their time.
0: Yeah, and the problem I was running into is I never had enough memory available because Windows forced itself into the memory and said, I am the most important person here. I mean, it's a freaking narcissist.
1: But it is an OS, right? So it has to control that stuff. (laughs) You know, like the, the process that controls the scheduling of processes has to have the highest thread priority.
0: Well, yes, but it, all of its things, like all its
1: background tasks. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it takes a lot to send your telemetry data out. You know, like know. they got to get, you know, they got to get the live feed from your camera and send it to the CIA. It takes a lot. <laughs> so I get it. You know, it's it's what happens. Now, there's also a short-term scheduler, and this is the CPU scheduler and it controls the in-memory processes and determines which is to be executed by the CPU. It makes more frequent decisions than the previous schedulers. You know, stuff bounces in and out real quick in there because if it's getting executed right now, mm-hmm. it kind of needs to be responsive and everything that happens to be in that space needs to be responsive. So, it can forcibly remove processes from the CPU. This is called a, you know, this is called being preemptive.
0: Preemptive schedulers rely on an interval timer that runs in the kernel.
1: Right. So it just goes, hey, this thing's been running for this long, it's somebody else's turn.
0: Right. A dispatcher is the module that hands over control of the CPU to the process once it is selected by the short-term scheduler. So just like the long-term scheduler goes, all right, you're allowed like it hand it puts things into the queue. This is at that CPU level. It goes, all right, it's your turn. Go. Yeah. Do your, do your thing. All right. It's someone else's turn. Dispatchers context switch. And we use this term a lot to mean, you know, in various different circumstances, but it does so by saving the state of process that was running, then replaces it with a new process. They're also used for switching to user modes or starting a program in the proper location based on new or saved state.
1: Right, and this switching actually will burn you if you're doing real low-level stuff because Mm -hmm. jumping between kernel space and user space is expensive. I forget how many clock cycles, but that was one of the things that I've had to deal with with low-level code before.
0: Yeah, Schedulers use algorithms known as scheduling disciplines to distribute resources among processes, uh, be they simultaneous or asynchronous. Uh, And honestly, we're going to go through this rather quickly and just hit the highlights because this could be its own episode
1: at the very least. Yeah. So scheduling algorithms minimize the amount of resource starvation to ensure that processes aren't continually denied resources. It's like if you know this thing is just beating the crap out of the, the hard disk, it's like, hey, you got to stop hitting the hard disk for a minute and let some other people Other threads
0: hit the hard disk. So we're going to go through a couple of these very briefly. Um, Not going into a whole lot of detail, but just giving you a high-level overview. The first one is first in, first out. First come, first served. It's a line. Yeah. (laughs) This is the simplest of the algorithms. Processes are queued based on the order they arrive. Um, Like I said, it's a line. Uh, The overhead of scheduling is minimized because context switches only happen at termination of a process, right? So it runs until it's done. And then the next one gets to go. And then the next one and the next one,
1: which is, is how in a high trust world, we used to do computing. And then we realized, ah, we can't really trust somebody that wrote a process because they're just going to spin forever. Mm -hmm.
0: Turnaround response and wait times are heavily dependent on when the process arrives and what's before it. Um, because every process goes into completion. There is no risk of starvation. You're going to get to use all the resources when it's your turn. You may have to wait for that turn. The next one, earliest deadline, is an algorithm that waits until a process terminates and then searches for the next one with, that is closest to its deadline or when it has to be completed by.
1: Right. Um, So, that's sort of the emergency-based scheduling you see in project management in a lot of development shops.
0: Yeah, exactly. In shortest remaining, first, the scheduler rearranges the queue of waiting processes. Remember, we said that it can move things around in the queue. So, it rearranges them based on the least amount of time estimated to complete the process.
1: Yeah, so the scheduling algorithm in that case has to have advanced knowledge about the time required for a process, and the current process may be interrupted if a shorter process arrives in the queue while it's running.
0: Longer processes will have longer wait times and response times and may suffer from starvation if shorter processes are continually being added to the queue. Right. So this
1: is the kind of scheduling you get with junior software developers who are trying to show management that they're being productive. So a new, a smaller task comes in and they immediately stop what they're doing on the big task, kill the small task and go back to the big task so they can go, hey, look, I was productive today.
0: Right. The operating system may assign a fixed priority rank to each process it receives, such as in fixed priority preemptive scheduling processes are then reordered in the queue by their priority. A low priority task may suffer longer waits and starvation because of incoming higher priority tasks. You'll see this with more mid-level developers who they, they see something come down the queue and like, oh, that I have to get done. So they'll stop what they're doing to go do what they perceive as a higher priority yeah. um, and then come back to it.
1: Which is also why switching priorities frequently is very, very bad because mm-hmm. it reorders the queue. Now, the next one is round-robin scheduling. So, in this one, you get a fixed amount of time that gets allocated for running processes. And then the scheduler cycles through each process for the amount of time set. So, it's like, hey, you get this many milliseconds. And it's going to be a smaller unit than milliseconds. Mm -hmm. You do your thing. And then when it hits that breaking point, I want to stop you and I want to do the next thing. Yeah. Now, this is a lot, you know, this is kind of overhead heavy because of the constant context switching. However, for like a desktop environment, that's kind of what you want.
0: Shorter jobs will be completed faster um, than with the first in first out and longer ones faster than the shortest first. The average response time is good, but individual wait times will vary depending on the number of processes in the queue. Right. So overall, it's going to be better, but an individual process may take longer depending on what's there. This is what I suffered from in the crap top.
1: Yeah, it's, it's basically the, the scenario is that as it gets under load, performance goes through the floor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Multi-level queue scheduling is used when processors can be divided into different groups, such as foreground and background processing, or where you've got multiple
0: processors. Yeah. So the next and final implementation we're going to talk about is the event loop the message dispatcher or event loop makes requests to an event provider, and then it calls the relevant event handler. Yeah,
1: event loops are one way of implementing message passing. This is under the hood in Windows, for mm-hmm. instance. Message pumps are what they call the thing that moves messages from the message queue in the underlying OS into the program for processing. So it's, you know, the OS is handling the messages, and then it gets to a certain point, and it it basically kicks it over to your program. Mm-hmm.
0: Main loops are top-level event loops that control the flow of the entire program. So in some languages, or um, I'm learning that with web APIs in .NET Core, you have a main function again. Right. Like, so that controls the flow of the entire program. Um, most modern applications are going to have a main loop that is only entered if there is something to be processed. And you'll see this, you'll
1: also see the pattern where there's a main thread and then there is a worker thread. Like mm-hmm. we see this a lot in Delphi, where there's the one that's actually handling all the window stuff and, and all that crap, and then there's another one that's for all the rendering and all that stuff. Um, Unix and Linux treat everything as a file, so they have file based event looping. So the file I.O. controls all reading, writing, and communication, both internal and network.
0: However, asynchronous events or signals are not handled by the file interface. Right. They get received through signal handlers. Mm -hmm. And these are small pieces of code that run while the rest of the task is suspended. This is a whole rabbit hole of Unix Linux kernels we are not going to delve into
1: now. I personally don't feel qualified for that one.
0: What I I would love to get a guest on to talk to us about that. Yeah, Um, about kernel hacking. Yeah, that would be really neat. Event-driven programming is a paradigm that allows control of the application flow to be determined by user actions or inputs. These actions can be user input, such as a mouse click or key presses, input from sensors, such as in IoT devices, or messages from other programs, such as when building an API. We just had an episode on API best practices.
1: Yeah. Um, This is the dominant paradigm in designing graphical user interfaces, right? Because your program doesn't know when you're going to click. It's just you clicked that goes into a queue somewhere and it gets handled. It just gets resolved real fast so you think it's real time.
0: It's also used in things like device drivers such as your USB ports. Yes. It involves a main loop that will listen for events that then trigger a callback when one is detected. With embedded systems, this is achieved using hardware interrupts instead of a main loop. This works best with high-level languages that have constructs like await and closures.
1: Event listening may be handled by the framework where checking for events in the main loop is common among application use. Um, You know, like, for instance, .NET WinForms, that's built to handle that stuff. Like, you don't really really deal with the event loop in there Mm -hmm. unless you're really getting in there.
0: But if you're doing, like, JavaScript, you may have event listeners in there that yeah. are waiting for things to happen.
1: Or dispatching. Like you'll do that in Node, right? You send, yeah. you kick out a signal. I forget what they call it in Node, but it's basically like, hey, handle this on the next tick.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, or like it's, you know, every loop is going, all right, has anything happened? Has anything happened? Has anything happened?
1: Yeah. Or has nothing happened? And am I, am I in a waiting state? In which case I have a message that says that and I have a right. yeah. waiter.
0: There are a few alternative designs that contrast the event loop design. Historically, programs would simply run once, then terminate, such as, you know, command line driven programs. Parameters were set up ahead of time and passed into the program. Uh, This design did not allow for a lot of user interaction within the program.
1: Now, of course... That worked pretty well then. It still works now.
0: Mm-hmm. For, um, for the command line type stuff. You would of stuff. be
1: shocked how many little command line programs actually run on your system if you actually go poke oh, around yeah. enough. Alternatively, menu-driven designs may still have a main loop, but they're not exactly event-driven. You know, users get presented with options that narrow down the task to be performed, and this allows for some interaction with users without a main loop. So it's going, mm-hmm. hey, you know, go to a certain point and then wait mm-hmm. for input and then they input, and then it goes.
0: So, now that we've talked about the various implementations of inversion of control, we're going to talk about a few related design patterns um, that Can be applied to help better implement. The first one is the template method pattern. And this is a behavioral design pattern that provides a template for building an algorithm. It's usually implemented as a base or abstract class with shared code and constants. This ensures that the controlling algorithm is always followed. Variables are given default values or implementations when it's set up. I use a base repository. Right, which all of my specific repositories inherit from. Uh, this allows me to use another of the Solid principles, Liskov. So all of my services take in a base repository. So whoever calls them, they create their they create their specific repository, and they can pass it in because the service only used the base. Makes but sense. The individual repository inherits from base, so it has all those on it.
1: Right. Um and. And it also helps with making generic constraints.
0: Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's why I do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is that too. Yeah. Yeah. These abstract classes have concrete implementations. They fill in empty or variable parts of the template. And algorithms vary from implementation to implementation. Yeah. Like your high level code
1: doesn't determine what algorithms to run, but instead a lower level algorithm is selected at runtime. Right. That's the idea. So you have things like uh, another thing that comes up is uh, service locator patterns. And that's a design pattern that encapsulates the processes for getting a service by way of an abstraction layer. Uh, It uses a central registry or service locator that returns information needed to perform a given task. So you go, Hey, I need one of these Mr. Service locator. Get me one. Mm
0: -hmm. All the dependencies are listed at the beginning of the application design. This simplifies component based applications. The dependency injection would then be a more complicated way of connecting objects. The biggest concern with this pattern is that it obscures dependencies. This makes the registry sort of a black box
1: uh, to the rest of the system. Or it makes it extremely heavy and it means that the rest of the system can't vary the implementation they pull back. They get, you know, they ask for a thing, they get that thing. Yeah. And they don't get to control the lifetime and those things. I've. Uh, worked on systems that were built that way and mm-hmm. it seemed smart at the time and it, then it really started hurting once the app was big.
0: Yeah, yeah. This this is, works a lot better with smaller things. The code is is harder to test and maintain because errors occur at runtime instead of compile time. Yeah. The strategy pattern is the final one we're going to talk about here and it's another behavioral design pattern that lets the code select an algorithm at runtime instead of implementing algorithms directly, the code gets instructions at runtime with a set of algorithms to use. This lets the algorithms be independent of the clients that are using them. It does this by storing references to code in a data structure. The code is then accessed through the pointer when it's needed. And it uses composition instead of inheritance,
1: right which is an extremely handy pattern that takes a little while to get used to um but in this pattern class behavior isn't inherited but it's encapsulated in interfaces so you kind of build the thing up from a wide of interfaces it's mm-hmm. you know it's like every higher level object is a cloud of interfaces yeah <laughs> that you're dealing with
0: it's it i i've looked into this and it it's one of those things like um it's one of those things you got
1: to do for a while and then it'll it'll make sense. Yeah, like you know, I was to say it's it's then. like
0: the lambda functions were for me. I'm like I just need to build stuff like this and just know that it's going to work and then one day it'll click. But uh, behaviors are defined in the interfaces and their implementations. There is a lot more ways to apply dependency inversion um, than just inversion of control. Diving deeper into these principles and patterns You see how when they are applied, the solid principles interrelate and work together to form better, more maintainable software. Individually, they may seem like a lot of work to implement. But as you start implementing one, you'll notice that the process to implement the others becomes easier. That's pretty much all we've got. Uh, Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the trade? Well, I want to relate uh,
1: the dependency inversion principle to consulting or to working at a job. Your boss is not looking for a tightly coupled component that does stuff for him. On average, they're looking for somebody that they can tell it to do a thing and it gets done. Right. And I bring this up because I see a lot of developers out there, especially in the consulting space of lately, and I'm not sure why this happens, but they'll do stuff like go, Hey, I'm, I'm refactoring this code. I am, you know, doing this, you know, really, really technical thing. And they put it as a line item, right? Like they put their best practices and their uh, ways of approaching things that are completely sensical in development terms, but they give that to the business people. And I just want to point out that that's probably not what you really want to do. What you actually want to do is you want to essentially give the boss an interface. They talk to the things that they care about. They don't hear about how you're refactoring, if that makes sense. It's, it's an abstraction thing that actually applies in real life. So just kind of mull on that a little bit and ask yourself, am I putting best practices as a line item on an invoice because if I am I am coupling my boss to the way that I work and that's bad that's all I got If you have a question or comment please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com our theme music is an excerpt from standby for titanfall by pure bells available on soundcloud and
0: licensed through creative commons the intro music for iot's is hillbilly hip-hop by jason belcher for references show notes and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com you can also follow us on twitter at completedevpod and like our page on facebook to keep up with news about the show Catch us each week as we broadcast live talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com
1: where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.